Welcome to the Leaders in Learning Design podcast by Blue Consulting and Resourcing, the place to get up-to-the-minute information on cutting-edge learning design. Today, we have with us in the studio Dr. MJ Bishop. She's the Associate Vice-Chancellor and Director of the University System of Maryland's Center for Academic Innovation. The center conducts research on teaching and learning with the goal to expand innovative academic practice. Previously at Lehigh University, she was responsible for their graduate program in instructional technology, among other things. She's the recipient of several excellence in teaching awards and is the author of numerous national and international articles on ways to improve learning and teaching. Welcome, MJ. Hi, thanks for having me. Now, you've been a project manager and a leader in instructional technology for many years, and we're really pleased to be able to learn from your experience today. So we'd like to kick off with some questions around what the Center for Academic Innovation is doing in response to COVID. How has that impacted your ability to shape the instructional culture in Maryland? Thanks for that question. Yeah, it may help if I start with a little bit of background on the center and the University System of Maryland. So after having been at Lehigh for many years, I had the opportunity to come to Maryland to lead for a brand new center at the system level to advance this conversation around academic innovation. And the University System of Maryland is made up of 12 very diverse public higher ed institutions. We have research intensive campuses. We also have three HBCUs, a fully online standalone institution, and a whole range of regional comprehensives from the beach to the mountains, the whole gamut, urban, suburban, everything. So it was a little bit daunting challenge to come and think about what does it mean to help coordinate and support conversations around increasing and improving access, affordability, and achievement for learners across 12 very diverse campuses. At that time, this was 2013, I was not alone in this. There were many of these kinds of centers and innovation offices popping up all over the country, but very few that were coordinating this work at the system level. I became, it became clear to me pretty quickly that my job was going to be less about going in and starting new course redesign projects at campuses or working directly with faculty or students, but rather to support the supporters, that my job was going to be working with those innovation people, the instructional designers, the centers for teaching and learning at each of our institutions and find ways that collectively and collaboratively we could improve their work and the conversation on these issues. Up until March, when we started shutting down because of COVID, our work had been primarily about supporting their work, thinking about ways that we could help to create a culture of innovation on our campuses through professional development of senior leadership, through helping creating collaborative projects in open education, in learning analytics, in alternative credentials, all these kinds of things, and looking for ways and opportunities that those collaborations could add value. If I'm not adding value at the system level, if I'm just getting in their way, that's, that's not improving and making their days better. So when COVID hit, I'll tell you, I sat at my here at my desk in my home for a couple of weeks, wringing my hands, worrying about what was happening at the institutions, and 
not altogether sure what we could do to help them. We were very fortunate to have received, I mentioned earlier, our, our fully online institution, UMGC. They received CARES Act funding that they couldn't use because they were already online because their students weren't directly impacted by COVID the way many of our residential campuses were. So uh, they received permission from the Department of Education to donate their funding back to our campuses and some of that funding came to the Kerwin Center to support the institution. So one of the things that I did right off the bat, and I had gotten asked by this by asked this by one of our state senators, if you had a whole bunch of money, what would you do with it? And the first thing that came to my mind was we need to expand the capability of the instructional design support staff at each of the institutions. That was front of mind for me for obvious reasons. I'm a little biased. So we contracted with a firm that provided us, has been providing us with basically instructional design retainer hours. And I've distributed those to each of the institutions to support their efforts to move online in whatever fashion they chose to do it, whether it was office hours, so to speak, for instructional, for faculty to visit instructional designers to answer questions, or whether it was uh, very specific projects that teaching and learning centers had, or in some cases now we've got a couple of our institutions using those hours to actually just go ahead and take full programs and convert them to online versions of those programs. We also invested in a whole lot of faculty professional development, actually used the Quality Matters workshops for that, as many other institutions did over the summer months in order to help faculty think about how do they do a better job engaging students online and, and those kinds of things. So what we've done to finally get back to the answer to your question, Joanne, what we've done over the last several months over the summer and into the fall has been largely to, to beef up those campus services in a variety of areas. We also contracted, have a system-wide license now with Labster for virtual reality simulations and lab environments, which has supported an awful lot of the lab courses. But one of the things that's been on my mind, again, thinking back to what our Kerwin Center mission has been, is how much, of, how much stickiness will there be with a lot of this work? How many of these things are going to continue after we get back to normal, using my air quotes, whatever normal will be? And my hope, of course, is that normal is a little better than the old normal was, because I think we're discovering now that normal wasn't so great for all of our students. So how do we hang on to some of these things that have, have happened over the last several months? How do, how do we retain that new openness that we're seeing among faculty to this kind of innovation? And what are the things that I should be doing out of the Kerwin Center to ensure that momentum continues? So we're starting to, to pivot a little bit in that direction now. We will, of course, continue to maintain these services through the spring semester. Unfortunately, now it's looking like we'll, we'll be living with this for a while longer. But at the same time, I'm really beginning to think about infrastructure and conversations we need to be having around even sharing even more resources than we are currently, sharing online courses, all the kinds of things that we could do collaboratively at a system level that individual institutions can't accomplish so easily on their own. So it sounds like the center has become more mission critical. Would that be a fair statement? Oh yeah, all of a sudden everybody wants to talk academic innovation. Not that they weren't talking to us before, but I think a lot of the work that we were doing were, was a nice to have peripheral activity. And interestingly, we had redone our strategic plan this time last year. And one of the very, the top goal that we have for the Kerwin Center, again, in that spirit of creating that culture of innovation, was to change the conversation about academic innovation from being 
a peripheral activity to being mission critical. And I think for sure that's where the conversation is now. But at the same time, what I'm not seeing happening at the senior leadership level is enough discussion about those investments that are going to be necessary in order to sustain this work. I think we desperately need, and I've been saying this for some time, we desperately need as higher education as an industry to be investing whatever resources we have back into our own research and development. We do research for everybody else. We do research for chemistry. We do research on medical advances, vaccines, all those kinds of things. But we are not willing, as willing, in our industry to invest in our own future in the same way that other industries are. Healthcare, for one, automotive, all these other technology, all these other industries are always looking ahead to what the next challenge is going to be and investing money in figuring out how to address those challenges. We're not so good at that in higher ed. In fact, when the budgets start to shrink, we start cutting things like faculty development and teaching and learning centers and instructional design staff and all that stuff. So that's interesting, MJ, to hear you talk about that resistance to invest in those kind of things. And suppose my question is, is twofold, really. First of all, why do you think that is? Why is there this resistance or reluctance to invest in these kind of ideas? And secondly, perhaps more importantly, what do you think we can do about that? What can we do to encourage that kind of investment? I'm not sure I have easy answer to why that's the case. I, I think that's getting, again, back to culture. I think that goes way back in the history of the academy. And the, the fact that as faculty, we're trained to, to be the sage on the stage and you're either with me or you're not with me. And frankly, we haven't altogether been so concerned about student success. In fact, I, I don't know how far back we have to go. I'm not so sure that stu student success is a fairly recent term for all of us, quite frankly. I, when I started at the Kerwin Center, I actually wanted to put student success in the title of the center and in the name of the center. And I was told, no, that's really about student affairs. That suggests something very different than what we're really after here with what you're doing. So that's only been seven years that now student success has become a major part of the vernacular of what we're talking about in the on the academic affairs side as well. I think we're also starting to see that merger between academic and student affairs and a, a better understanding that we need to be addressing students holistically instead of assuming that they're getting everything they need in the classroom and nothing is happening outside the classroom that could possibly alter your, or impact their success. So I think that culture, unfortunately, has left us not even bothering to stop to think about the fact that our future may be in jeopardy, that people could ever begin to believe that higher education may not be the best value for the buck, that these are all things that have happened actually relatively recently for higher education. This is going to require a very different way of thinking about what the future might be and understanding that we're going to have to be thinking about that reinvesting in ourselves if we're going to succeed and, quite frankly, be sustainable in the future. So with the sudden widespread adoption of virtual learning, it feels like it's propelled us forward about 10 years as far as technology integration. What are some of the biggest challenges that you face at the Center for Academic Innovation when you reflect on this rapid technology adoption? Is it good distance learning? Is it good distance learning? Is that what you asked? Yeah, that's the big 
million dollar question. I am not yet convinced that we're there yet. I, I, in fact, one of our institutions reported that over the summer they had done a lot to put a lot of material online asynchronously after the emergency remote teaching experience in the spring. And when they got this, the fall semester started, apparently they got a whole lot of pushback from students and in some cases from parents as well saying, hey, we want a synchronous experience. We're, we're not so excited about this asynchronous experience. And we're hearing a, a lot about that then a lot of institutions that pivoted back again to incorporating a lot more synchronous activities. I, that, I don't doubt that we have students or students that come to our residential campuses are looking for a certain kind of learning experience in college. So I don't doubt that they crave that synchronous opportunity to be connected to their faculty, to their colleagues, their peers, other students. But I also, it also left me wondering about how engaging that asynchronous experience was. When, again, using my air quotes, was asynchronous basically an LMS populated with a bunch of readings and online quizzes every other week? Or was asynchronous something more engaging and something that had been really thought out from an instructional design perspective? I don't know the answer to that question directly, but I do think that those are the things we need to be asking ourselves. There's still an awful lot of technologies, adaptive courseware and other kinds of things that I think could really be augmenting the online experience for learners and for faculty, frankly. And I'm not sure that we're really exploring those opportunities in the same way we should be, largely because I think a lot of the campuses are thinking, don't worry, this will end soon and we'll get back again to normal. I, I, it'll be interesting to see, again, how much of this stuff is retained after COVID is over. But as you say, MJ, it, it's far from over at the moment, at least. So based on the research and, and based on your insights, what do you think are some of the things that we should be doing more of? Things that we really could be taking advantage of in, in the kind of new environment that's certainly likely to persist for the foreseeable future. I, I am really excited about what's happening at the intersection of adaptive courseware and OER. One of the things that I've been talking about for some time now is that with openly licensed materials, we've been missing the boat by simply touting the free part and the low cost part. That in fact, the true, truly interesting affordance of OER for me is the open part. Because what that enables us to do as faculty potentially down the road, when these are when these OERs are instrumented with the kinds of platforms that give us the data we need to understand how our students are interacting with these materials and whether or not the materials are effective or not for them. What it allows us to do is to have the data we need to engage in continuous improvement. And as instructional designers, we should be all over this idea. Here's the first time ever we've had a chance to do this with instructional materials. And I'm really worried that we're going to miss the boat on that because what's happening right now, because we keep talking about affordability and the free part, is we're beginning to see, we're beginning as institutions to understand what OERs are costing us because we've incurred all of these activities that publishers used to take on for us in the past, ensuring relevance, it's up to date, accessibility, all these kinds of things that costs our institutions resources and money. And we're starting to see some studies as they're actually calculating that. And let's assume it's about $25 per student per course. 
when the publishers start to get their costs down to about that level as well, faculty are just going to look at this and say, hey, why not just go with that McGraw-Hill or that Pearson product when, you know, it's going to be a lot less work and it's about ref working out to be about the same cost. When that happens, we will have completely missed the boat on the open part, in my view. That actually opens up, as I said before, so many doors around continuous improvement. I think it opens up doors for us to be thinking as faculty about that teaching part of my three-pronged duties to my institution and the ways in which what I do in the contributions I make to teaching could parallel what I do in the contributions I'm making to research and scholarship. So now I'm engaging as a faculty member directly with content to improve it, to make it relevant for my learners, hopefully with the help of a team behind me, instructional designer, library, probably some assessment folks. And I'm able, hopefully down the road, as these OERs also carry with them metrics like how many students have, have engaged with these materials, how many institutions have adopted them. Suddenly now as a faculty member, I'm engaging in contributions to teaching in a quantifiable way, in the same way I engage in contributions to the research and scholarship in my field. Among the things I would love to see, for example, our disciplinary societies start to look at is, is there potential here for OER to improve what we do as a field in the same ways as research and scholarship has done in the past? Those are the things that excite me about OER, and I've completely lost track of your original question, Graham, but hopefully I answered it in there somewhere along the way. It does. We have so many instructional designers right now who feel like they're stuck in triage mode, that it's get something out there, make it do, and try and figure out what's going to happen next, that somehow leadership has limited their view of instructional design to just get something up. Are you seeing that reflected in academics in your state? Yeah, I think so, for sure. And of course, some of it's understandable. We've been in crazy panic mode for eight months. And I would encourage our instructional design colleagues to at least be patient with respect to that. And But I do think you're right that, and we've already talked a little bit about the need to reinvest in instructional design support coming from senior leaders. And again, that was the whole purpose in my mind of providing all of those retainer hours to the institutions. But I'll tell you, I do, I, I am concerned, having come from the instructional design field, I am a little concerned sometimes about, mis, missteps isn't quite the right word, the inadequacy, I think, of the instructional design field in communicating what it is we do exactly. I think that, that it's also incumbent upon us to make clearer what value we bring to the table. And I'll give you a concrete example that a mistake I made over the summer. We basically put out there, hey, faculty, here's instructional design support. And anybody, any faculty member that had no, and we're here to help, which is one of my pet peeves, right? Somebody comes to you and says, hey, what can I do to help? And now suddenly you've got to figure out what job to give them, right? So they've actually added to your plate instead of actually helped. Instead, you walk in and you say, hey, I see you need this. I see you have a problem that needs to be solved. Here's how I can help you do that. And, and we made that mistake this summer. We, we came in and we said, hey, we're here to help. Instead of saying, we probably shouldn't even use the term instructional designer. We should have begun with having trouble keeping your students. Did you have trouble this spring keeping your students engaged? Were you concerned about academic integrity on your final exam? 
These are people that can help you think through some solutions to those problems. Call this number or whatever the, the way they access them was. So I think as instructional designers, we're trained, right, in instructional message design and communicating efficiently and without a lot of extra cognitive load for learners. I think we need to translate some of those skills now also to our colleagues within our institutions and stop to think about what am I telling people I'm here to do? What am I, how am I communicating what my skills are and the ways in which I can help? And have I taken a moment, it's that empathy piece of all of this, right? Have I taken a moment to stop to think, what do Joanne and Graham need that I can help to solve? And walk in with that instead of saying, I'm here to help. Love it. That's great. So with that in mind, what would be your top piece of advice for an isolated instructional designer who's working from home, faced with designing and delivering a bunch of virtual learning experiences in these unusual times. What can they do today differently that's going to improve their practice? Wow, that's a really good question. I, For starters, I think we probably ought to address that isolation and frustration and feeling you're putting a lot of stuff out there into the ether and you're not altogether sure it's making a difference for anybody. I think some practicing some well-being, reaching out to colleagues, understanding that you're not alone in that feeling, that you're not alone in that same worry that I had back in March. What the heck can I do to help make a difference? Knowing that your colleagues and people that you care about are tired, frustrated, have innovation fatigue, all of those kinds of things that we know, Zoom fatigue that we know is, is going on right now. But then in addition to that, I think, as I said before, um, trying to figure out ways that if you're not feeling like you're making enough of a difference and that faculty aren't understanding what you're doing beyond, please put these things into the LMS for my next course. I do think thinking hard about the, the emails you're sending to faculty, the, the ways you're communicating with your own supervisors and leadership at the institution, again, about the kinds of things that you can bring to bear in solution of these problems. Barbara Bickelmeyer wrote the afterword to the research section in the Handbook of Research and Educational Communications and Technology on the impact that our instructional design training can have in a leadership capacity at our institutions. We're trained to think about learners, to understand the goals that we're trying to achieve educationally, to think about then how we sequence content and what the scope of that should be. We've, we're trained to think about assessing those things. These are all things that our institutions desperately need right now. I would encourage our instructional design colleagues to think beyond just their role to within in direct communication and working with faculty on moving courses online to also recognize the contributions they could be making to other parts of the institution and be confident in that there's an awful lot of expertise that you have that is going to stun a lot of folks at your campus, quite frankly. I found that to be true when I came to the system. In fact, at one point, my, my boss, the vice chancellor for academic affairs, academic and student affairs said to me, how did you learn all this? Quite frankly, I'm probably not the sharpest tack in the box. There's an army of people that have been trained in instructional design that think even better than I do. I think we just don't know to tap that expertise in ways other than thinking about populating an LMS with a lot of instructional materials. I love it. Thanks so much, MJ. It's always great to hear about how we can be part of the solution in these troubling times. Listeners, 
If you want to learn more about the great work being done at the Center for Academic Innovation on teaching and learning best practices, follow the link in the transcript of this podcast. You've been listening to the Leaders in Learning Design podcast at Blue Consulting and Resourcing, a weekly podcast for cutting-edge learning design.